DevOps at its core, it's a cultural thing. It's all about kind of getting people doing the things to automate what machines should be doing, essentially. The first step would be uh, get everyone the basic uh, knowledge and equipment to be able to contribute and then courage to get them to contribute to those processes and set up and ultimately owning the entire CICD pipeline as a whole team, as opposed to having one person relying on it. Hello, and welcome to DevOps Sauna. The DevOps conference is happily behind us and we are back to the grind. We had over 10,000 registered attendees and we saw over 6,500 unique visitors over the two days. It was a fantastic event and you can still watch all the speeches online for free. You can find the link at the show notes. This time we are happy to have a guest from CircleCI. Zan Markin is a developer advocate at CircleCI on a mission to educate and inspire developers on the topics of CI/CD, DevOps, and software quality. He is passionate about serverless technologies, mobile development, and developer experience. And as he said, outside of work, he enthuses over airplanes, craft beer, and the Oxford comma. We also managed to snatch Anton Bartlietnov from Efico to the show. Anton is a full-stack developer and has been working in several projects involving CI pipelines, both at Eficode and in the customer. As often, the discussion is facilitated and enriched by our CTO, Marco Clemetti. Welcome, everybody, and welcome to listen the podcast together with Circle CI. Today, we're going to be talking about the CI/CD, both in big and small organizations, and how the builds work and, and tips and tricks for fixing builds fast and efficiently. I'm Marco Clementi, CTO of Evicode, and together with me today we'll be talking Zan Marken from Circle CI and Anton Padlednov from Evicode. If you may, let's just start by putting Circle CI on the map. So if you could, Zan, just give a short introduction to Circle CI. Yeah, so we are CI CD platform, first and foremost. We, we call ourselves the largest shared CI CD platform out there. And uh, yeah, we enable teams all around the world to uh, build and uh, kind of push changes to their software, to their, to their customers as quickly, as efficiently, and as painlessly and successfully as possible. As far as I've understood, CircleCI is both offered as a cloud offering, but then also as on-demand. How would you see that uh, that area? Like, If you look at CircleCI today, what are, is, is this a shared emphasis or is it something that you're leaning towards in the future? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously... Teams use us in many different ways, and yeah, a lot of a lot of our usage comes from the cloud, which is, I believe, how we started as well as a company. But server is another very kind of prominent uh, part of our business as well. We actually just released Server 3.0, a new version that's kind of installable to Kubernetes, and uh, it has basically every feature parity with with the cloud offering. We just released that. And it's very popular with our more enterprise customers that have uh, different kind of requirements for running CI/CD pipelines on their own infrastructure, behind their own uh, firewalls, and so on. And we also have a hybrid version. It's called the Runner. It essentially brings the benefit of the cloud. So everything is managed through the cloud-based version, but the builds or 
certain aspects of builds can be executed on your own infrastructure. So again, if you have hardware uh, requirements that are quite specific, or if you have kind of security requirements, you can actually run those kind of jobs isolated on your own infrastructure with having all the benefits from the cloud-based solution as well. Wow, interesting. Can you also put yourself in the map of the competition. So is this something that's very specific that you like in Circle CI, how you see that the competitive edge is coming from? Or is there something else? If you look at, for example, Jenkins services or then the cloud providers own CI tools or then the GitHub actions, for example. So how would you put yourself in the competitive map? Yeah, absolutely. So first, if you, you mentioned Jenkins uh, first, so Jenkins is the open source behemoth. Essentially, it's it's uh, probably the one of the most popular uh, CI/CD tools. What people are most know most often know when they uh, think about CI/CD. But obviously, because it's an open source tool, you have to do a lot of heavy lifting yourself. You have to maintain all that infrastructure. You have to deal with all the kind of plugin kind of ecosystem, kind of maintain everything yourself. And if you don't have this capacity in your team, it's actually like full-time job for one or more people. On the other hand, uh, CircleCI is a managed solution. You either use our cloud-based service, which is a SaaS, so you, just, you don't have to do anything, you just use it, or obviously install it on your infrastructure. Again, we provide all the all the tools, everything that you need for that. So that's the distinction between yeah, using a open source tool versus uh, using our kind of managed uh, or hosted uh, software. And uh, with the other cloud vendors, they often have CI CD as feature that's kind of complementing their entire ecosystem of tools. But that's like that's to say that they don't necessarily have the ability to focus on CI/CD, whereas CircleCI is all about CI/CD. It's that's that's what we do. Every single engineer we have is focused on making this kind of CI/CD pipeline experience better for for the developer. And yeah, so essentially, like cloud-based providers, and yeah, also DevOps DevOps uh, ecosystems like uh, GitHub, for example, they are essentially competing with other kind of providers in that space and offering features because they, the, their competitors have them. And we can be focused on, yeah, just kind of providing that CICD excellence, essentially. Perfect. Sounds reasonable. I'm going to start by throwing the ball of what is the difference between small and big organizations and the teams working over the CICD in small and big organizations? In my in my experience, uh, to my knowledge, difference is usually just number of developers that are yeah working on things. But when you when you drill down to it, developers are still like more often than not they are still working in small kind of teams within those organizations. So there's like obviously Amazon's two pizza team or uh, or something similar like Agile team. However, however you want to call them. Those kind of small clusters, small teams of developers are very similar across the board, I would say. They can use the same tools, they can use the same programming languages, same programming paradigms. And uh, once you get down to that level, to the team level, it's, it's quite universal. Sometimes, obviously, 
larger orgs will have dedicated people who kind of maintain those pipelines, like uh, CICD engineers or, or developer experience engineers that kind of make sure that the tooling across the org is kind of standardized. Some startups, some smaller teams may not have this uh, ability. So more focus is kind of like more effort is kind of spread on sharing that uh, across the entire uh, organization. But once you get like to to the team level, it's pretty much the same or equivalent. Sounds reasonable. Do you want to, Anton, add in from your experience? Yes, actually, uh, wondering that assuming you have a small team, like let's say a maximum of 10 developers, what is the benefits of using Circle CI compared to, let's say, Hub or even self-hosted uh, GitLab? So small team, what's the benefit of Circle CI? Obviously, it's it's a tool that does the job. I think it does it really well. It will do the job for that team. We have some features that are very, very kind of, I would say, our competitive advantage, for example, like speed or just the flexibility that we offer versus some other some other competitors. If if a team is comfortable in in a tool, if a team is comfortable in this kind of CI CD paradigm, that's what they should essentially be that's essentially should be using, I suppose. Uh, yes, uh, thank you. Just uh, been wondering that uh, there's uh, several projects where you actually have the CI pipeline, but the actual deployment is still not not like continuous development. You still have releases. And I realized that uh, you can still use even Circle CI. So kind of you just push the button when you are ready to deploy. Like everybody's talking about CI CD, but in, in reality, there's a lot of CI and not that that much CD still scores because a lot of the enterprise solutions still want to have a scheduled release date, which means that uh, you, you can still have the automation and you can still have the development. But some uh, if you go to uh, a sales manager and say that we have this cloud-based solution and he said, how can you be sure that it will work at this and this time? And uh, there's, there's still this somehow strange mistrust that the automated system will not work. And uh, I think it's it's time to change that. Everybody should understand that having an automated tool doesn't mean that you can have scheduled releases either. Yeah, I, I think so too. But the reality is, as an industry, we're just not there across the board. Some orgs, obviously, some teams are way more advanced or, or way more... in invested into into C, C, the CD aspect. And some teams are just kind of getting started. And uh, But everyone can benefit from, from the same tools. Everyone can be- benefit from having tests run or some automation. And uh, especially last year, we've seen that this is really, really crucial for pretty much every team to, especially when we started going all, all remote and so on. But yeah, like... Organizations will come to this uh, adopting the CD paradigm at some point at their pace. Some enterprises slower, some uh, or later. Some enterprises sooner. We're our job is essentially to educate and uh, to kind of enable that anyone who wants to get there is able to get there as quickly, as painlessly as 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 possible. Yeah, I'm a huge advocate of 
completely separating deliveries and releases from each other. So as you speak about continuous delivery, it should mean that you deliver continuously, but the delivery doesn't necessarily mean a release. And I've seen that this is also a big change for mo- many big organizations to realize that, okay, we can actually deliver working software. We just haven't switched on the features that are new or for certain certain customers only or whichever. So actually you're delivering the software all the time and might be even failing in production all the time. But the fixes happen only in the areas that are not either enabled or are just then small ones. So I think we've settled on the CICD leaning towards the CCD. Can you both talk about a bit on the why is it important to resolve issues with bills as quickly as possible. Naturally, I see that that CD is one of the reasons, but if we think that we're still working in the releases world where the delivery isn't necessarily happening, is it still important to fix the bills immediately? In my in my experience, yes, absolutely. It's 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 crucial because we take all the human factors out of the equation. And that's where most of the failures actually happen when humans make small but avoidable mistakes that computers would probably not make. So as you said, like software is constantly being delivered. And even though it's not automatically deployed to your Kubernetes clusters, to to wherever you, you, you are running it, it should still always be in a state where you can say, okay, that I'm going to take this and I'm going to go with deployment. I'm going to go with releasing this uh, to the to the end uh, users and customers. So yeah, that's the crucial bit. Often as possible or as constantly as possible, you need to be in that state where you can say, okay, that's, we can build this, we can, we can go through the rest of the process. And whether that's automated or not, it's, it's in its, its own question. But obviously I would say, Ideally, it would be automated, but yeah, if, even if it's not, uh, that's still that's still uh, still deliverable. And yeah, if a build is broken, if the tests aren't running, or if something else has broken, like some something with the infrastructure, something with the the setup, uh, so it doesn't even compile, you obviously can't make and build any changes, and that software is then not deliverable. So that's that's my that's my angle on this. I yeah have a similar similar notes that regarding like assuming uh, in fact I myself had once in a while pushed some changes into repository without actually testing if does it even compile like blindly trusting my own logic which is of course uh, not <laughs> a good practice so uh, even uh, so sometimes the problem is not in the build but the problem is in the developing side that the developers did not change their didn't test well enough uh, before pushing into even their own branch. And uh, But then again, uh, let's say your build fails. So uh, is there some sort of, like I said, hidden knowledge or some sort of, sort of hidden parameters which you are using on your local build, which have not been documented? And once you have a working automated system, there is no no longer this like let's say the team changes or the guy who was developing this feature moves away to a different project or even a different company and then some uh, half a year later somebody realizes this component no longer builds because we are not sure what he was using and perhaps 
the developer no longer has access to the code. Let's say he deleted the repository and he maybe forgot what was his hidden commented debug lines. If you have an automated script, you, it's, it's either working or it's not working. There is, you can see all the script phases in the script. There is no hidden commands that you have to input. So for several customers, uh, we have realized that, uh, moving to an automated system generally improves this, uh, kind of transparency. Yeah, there's also, I noticed that when moving towards continuous delivery as you work in, in cloud, Kubernetes, Docker, container world, there are two things that promote continuous delivery. The first one is the secrets management. So once you have your build settings in place automated, usually you want to forget about the secrets management and the deliveries then just include the secret management as it should. And the other part, of course, is if you do, for example, Kubernetes, blue, green releases or similar, it's really hard to do manually. So actually having the automation do it for you is, is much better than to try to even do the separate the CI and releasing. Yeah, secrets management especially is is a is a very interesting and potentially a tricky topic. Yeah, even though you have everything automated, let's say a developer then leaves the company and their keys are revoked. And they, they are the ones who set up everything. So it's sometimes that can still, uh, that can still happen, even though you have the whole pipeline uh, scripted, automated and well documented. And uh, obviously the, the way to get around that is to have accounts just for, uh, for that service set up so that, yeah, you don't. You, you don't rely on a personal uh, kind of secrets versus automated ones. And another small comment related to this uh, security. Let's say you have a project which has all the, let's say, database passwords and so on stored in the actual code, which means it's in the repository, which means some random external developer getting access to the repository will get production passwords, which let's say you have this automated deployment, then it you should design or maybe change your design in such a way that these uh, kind of sensitive information is not stored in the database. Because if you are building it by hand, you just know, okay, I have this file here, I can use it from here. But then a deployment tool needs access to these files, so you should perhaps sometimes redesign your software in such a way that you no longer need it during the building phase, that it's maybe sometimes later copied from some config file or is read from some config file and not stored in the code, which improves the security aspect. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, one that I kind of uh, forgot to mention earlier was just like, if you have your build kind of lingering uh, for a long time, that's like uh, not fixed, you're kind of still accumulating. Uh, it, it very often happens that you're still accumulating these changes new bug fixes, new features, while someone, some poor sod is essentially working on getting that thing moving. And uh, it reminds me of that ship that was stuck in the Suez Canal for a while, uh, a few weeks ago. And uh, all, all those kind of ships that couldn't really move because of, uh, of ever given really going sideways <laughs> had to decide, okay, we're going to go around Africa to get to Europe. And uh, that just seemed like, yes, this is this is what you do when you're kind of 
you can't deploy with or deliver with CI/CD, and you have to rely on on manual processes instead. Yeah, luckily they were eventually able to unload the queue. So, bit of a relief there. It's not always so rosy in the software development side, though. Going back to having the CI/CD pipeline established, if something fails, how would you go about investigating a, b- a possible build problem? Yeah, what, what I would do is essentially uh, turn it off and on again, which means trigger it again. <laughs> see if see if it magically fixes itself. It usually doesn't, but it will give me a signal that it's a non-deterministic thing to, to, to do. Then I would obviously start looking at why something fails, like look at the logs at uh, where it fails. Maybe it's a failing test. Maybe it's uh, something infrastructural. Maybe it's, yeah, it's it's a key that's been missing, an environment variable that has kind of been revoked or misset or something like that. So the component, like try to really pinpoint what we're, what we're dealing with and uh, which step it happened in. After which point, then you kind of start looking at that specific step and seeing, okay, that's something that uh, uh, could be looked into. Tests obviously are very different to kind of more procedural or, or uh, scripted parts. What else do we have? Yeah. So if it's, if it's scripts, then obviously try to see, try to add some more logging, some seeing if there is, yeah, some environment stuff that's misset or just kind of misconfigured. Maybe it was a, maybe it was something that's been obviously. If it's CI/CD and it's happened now uh, and not happened uh, with the previous commit, see the differences between those two commits, and that usually gives you a good idea of what and how it might have gone wrong. If it's tests, obviously, it's especially when you have when you're dealing with like uh, emulators and external devices integrations, then that can bring bring in some more flakiness, which. Uh, which is an art form in its in its own. So, flaky tests. How to fix those? How many retries is enough? Do we do we try to kind of avoid this re re rewrite tests themselves to kind of uh, get them back to back to working? Yeah. So that's kind of that's kind of my my thing. And uh, yeah, once you kind of know where it is, then you can start looking into more advanced uh, ways to pinpoint it. Yeah, I guess I can continue right from there. So uh, again, the, the most important thing to realize is like, what was the problem? Like, did it compile? Was it the test? Was it uh, the runner itself? The quite a common uh, issue is actually, let's say you're, it's uh, some sort of long-term project and uh, independent of the language, whether it's JavaScript or Python or even Java, sometimes some library changes. So your code didn't change. But because your build is running in a container and the new version of the library stops either supporting some deprecated piece of code or perhaps just changes the way it works. And then you're like, I didn't change this piece of code, but it no longer compiles. What the hell? And uh, uh, then you just have to realize that you have not updated your code. You have not removed some deprecated parts or... Sometimes it's even the configuration because sometimes uh, you have incorrectly configured the repositories to get the external tools from. 
like you're using the wrong Docker image, or you are using the correct Docker image, but let's say Debian moved to, or Red Hat moved to some new version, which and you're using the latest one, and now it behaves differently. Uh, this specifically related to, let's say, JavaScript or C++. They are infamous for strangely changing the behavior of a few libraries. And uh, then again, so is it like, was it a user error? Because once in a while I ran into a situation when I was running a Jenkins job and then it said no changes because I didn't realize that it takes a while for the Jenkins job to realize that there were actually changes in the repository and they canceled the job. And then somebody saw that the build was failing and there was an alarm like, why is the master branch build failing? Like you should not push crap into production, but it was just you can sometimes just let, 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 let the build finish and uh, see from there. Because in the logs, you, you might get some strange results if it was interrupted manually. And again, this comment that red is bad is like the, the attitude is like if you have a failing build, it means like, oh no, that the world is ending. And apparently like uh, the problem is if you have some feature, which like some build, which hasn't you've noticed the problem and it hasn't been fixed. It's not a problem if one of the feature branches is not working, perhaps it's still developed. Because again, again, they have this kind of branch-like approach. Let's say you have even several developers working on the same piece of code, like the same feature. Well, if it's not the develop, if it's not the main branch, it's okay that uh, the build fails because this is, it means like uh, the, Developer realized that, okay, maybe my code compiles, but the tests are not running, and then he fixes it. So having a failing build is not the end of the world. Surprisingly often, I noticed that the library changes affect the build result. And it's actually funny if you look at Alpine Linux being currently one of the de facto uh, container bases for Docker, for example. And Alpine has, like, it's infamous for changing their library if you're just running Alpine latest you have bumped into, for example, Python dependency changes on, on the air. And also there was a huge security flaw in Alpine for many years in the Docker images routes. And it, it's kind of funny how if you define your modern development pipeline leaning for the library versions to not changing and then using like latest or, or you would have NPM packages, for example, for JavaScript, updating themselves, it might cause huge trouble. And what many of our customers have done is that they have a parallel build running on the side. So you have one with the locked versions and then the other one with the versions updating real time. So your production or mainline build isn't failing, but then you see immediately if your if your so-called latest build branch is failing and you can react there without having to compromise your mainline code. And yet another comment, uh, sorry to interrupt, like, there is there, do you have, like, let's say your previous build is built, is working and now the latest build is not working, do you have some sort of rollback procedure? Is your system, like, is the automation uh, in such a state that it's possible to either get back to the previous version or to actually deploy the previous version. Because uh, in several projects, the update is automated, but the rollback is not. So if something fails, then you need to call the guy who actually knows how to how to do the commands. Yeah, I mean, rollbacks are very interesting, uh, definitely. 
just because yeah you don't you don't think about them until you need them i mean the, the way the way it i think should work and uh, in an ideal world is you kind of switch to a different commit that has been proven to work and then the rollback will essentially redeploy everything to that version not not uh, the world is not an ideal place so sometimes you obviously need to uh, and often you need to kind of get that person who knows whether knows the environment inside and out and uh, get them to help out or or manage that but hopefully that doesn't happen and uh, doesn't happen often and also shouldn't happen if you have uh, if you have the ability to really deploy and deliver changes which are very very small because if the changes are small you're kind of relying on like big bad rollbacks a lot less frequently than you would if you were deploying uh, three months worth of code essentially each time. Yeah, also the rollback is usually easier said than done. So 90, 95% of rollbacks might be just redeploying the previous version. But when you have database migrations in place, how do you go about debugging either the build or then rollback procedures? Do you have any experience there? Luckily, not a lot. Yeah, I imagine databases are a whole a whole different uh, beast, and anything that uh, deals with that usually, like ideally, you have databases that are you take snapshots as as frequently as possible, and then kind of go to that version of the database. Potentially losing some data in the process, but ideally, you can still kind of uh, retrofit that data that has accumulated be- between kind of snapshot and when it stopped working and you kind of roll that back but in a in a in at a later stage not as a part of that kind of rollback because you're mostly interested in integrity up until that snapshot and uh that obviously the schemas are all kind of working so i think that's a good good kind of starting point at, at least uh, I've never, well, I've uh, worked in several projects where, like, it's been noted that if you really have to do a database rollback, basically, we have the snapshot system, but it works. But, like, try not to do that because it takes a while as a big database. And the only issue where I actually ran into a situation where some data was lost was uh, in my own uh, game development it was a multiplayer game with uh, thousands of players, and I decided to change some item system. And then I realized that uh, I treated some strings wrong, wrong and some people lost uh, lost some value. But I mean, it was a game. So the last backup, unfortunately, was like a week ago. So I made some sort of script which managed to interpolate what they could have had realistically and then uh, contacted them. So if you if it's mismatching, you can contact the support. But uh, in actual enterprise production, it's again, if you have like financial databases, remember to keep recent backups, at least make a backup either the day before release, if it's a really big database or maybe even several hours if it's possible. Yeah, many cloud services already provide the, the live backupping, which is also good. But then if, as I said, if you use like, say, messaging systems like Kafka or then have like real time databases, which you just simply cannot 
role back then, then it is definitely one of the big issues for big organizations. And I will only add here that from my experience starting continuous delivery in a big organization usually starts from avoiding these uh, pitfalls and trying to start the continuous delivery in areas where you don't have, for example, database migrations or some other schema migrations in place but instead build, for example, microservice platform and then separate the databases completely. And even then, if you have to use databases, use either local Redis or MongoDB or which, whichever solution locally and then try to use message queues. So. Hello again. CICD has many aspects to consider and trying to solve them on your own can be a tough job. We recently introduced a free online pipeline game where you and your colleagues can learn the perks of continuous delivery in a fun way. You can find the link to the game in the show notes. If you are a member of a local DevOps community or you run a team who you would like to better learn the secrets of continuous delivery, we offer facilitated workshops where you and your folks can learn how to improve your software production. Reach us at marketing at ethico.com. Now, Let's get back to our show. I was ages ago, I said I've had a few commits in cruise control, which is probably one of those that started the CI movement back in the halfway through 2000s. I bumped into electric cloud back then. I, I think it's now part of cloud bees, but they had a concept of pre-flight. And pre-flight means that you run the build before entering it into CI machine. And my question to you is, now that you're doing commits and you're checking the code locally in order for it to work before you enter it into the CI machine, how do you make sure that it actually builds? And do we have some sort of a modern concept for the pre-flight, which means essentially using the CI machine before actually entering it into the CD machine? Obviously, it's, I mean, it's, it's all down to scripting it, I would say. So you kind of build your own workflow in the way that works for you. Usually, if you rely on branching to develop your software, you're working on a feature branch or like even like a sub-feature branch or, or something else, you can say, don't do the deployment unless it's uh it's on main or 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 whichever few branches that you want and you can usually kind of filter based on that in 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 the workflows at least with with circle ci you can do that there is also the pre-flight checking of the uh, of the config file as well so i mean just just the validation that your pipeline is correctly configured done by a CLI and uh, parses the, the the script and that obviously checks it for you. And you can actually do that in a, in a pre-commit hook with, with Git. So you can just do that automatically. And then like when it comes to running unit tests, running any type of tests, I tend to like still run unit tests locally just because that's how I grew up with, and I'm I'm, I'm old fashioned, so uh, I still like to make sure that it's it's all verified. Uh, but that's very much a manual process for 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 me. And as far as any kind of longer running, more integration, functional type tests, uh, I don't want to run them locally because they take a lot of time, and that's the point of CI to kind of 
take that and do that while I'm focusing on other things and give me obviously the signal as fast as possible, but not kind of keep me uh, bogged down with just waiting for it to to pass while I'm kind of trying to concentrate on getting this uh, feature shipped. And yeah, as as far as deployments, you can always add more deploy deployment uh, uh, avenues. You know how, like, I think Heroku popularized that kind of uh, staging uh, PR deploys essentially so that was that was a pretty cool feature back in the day where you were able to just kind of spin up a new environment for your PR to check whether something works and uh, for for a website that's just like beautiful because you kind of again offload all of that in an asynchronous way and still kind of protect your main kind of d- deployment pipelines so that's kind of my my stage, uh, my, my uh, take on on pre-flight. You can do it, but yeah, kind of build it, build those things into your kind of existing pipelines. It's probably a better way than to like s- separate it. Yeah, very similar notions again. So also when you are developing, if you have uh, whatever idea you are using, well, let's hope you are not developing in BIM at least. I guess this is a controversial topic, but let's say you're using some sort of graphical editor. Uh, most of them come with at least error checking, perhaps even linting tools, so you can see, okay, and let's say you're using Visual Studio Code and you are doing some commits, you will see that your code has some sort of errors even before you commit to the branch, so you realize that something is still wrong. And uh, in the similar note, like, let's say you have this sort of branch-based development. Before you merge your branches to main, let's say you have a team of five or maybe 10 or maybe even 20 developers working on several features, which are all scheduled for some sort of monthly release. So a good practice is to have, after all these, uh, all the branches have been merged together, to still run the check not on the individual branches, but on the merged version. Because sometimes, even though the code in the different features works, once it's merged together, one change A breaks change B. And then before you are pushing to master, it's not very easy to decide what's what's the fix, because you might need to spend some time fixing it. So having this kind of virtual environment, let's say you are a web-based application, most of them are, you will have to see that it still it still works, some sort of UAT environment. And it can even be temporary, like you can run the tests on this environment, but it can also be accessible to to your developers. Yeah. I've seen that many of the best performing organizations have already moved away from the so-called staging environments. So for example, Smartly is directly deploying their pull requests to a production-like environment where the users can then just go and both demonstrate the new feature and test that it works as it should. And then once it's merged, it's going to the production environment from the merge. And now that we have, for example, say GitHub has the pull requests that are building on top of each other, it's actually a good way of doing such deployments, for example, using the CircleCI for the purpose. 
I would like to talk next a bit about the skills needed for running the CI/CD and what kind of new skills does a developer need in order to be able to do the modern software development? And what kind of needs or skills can we get from somewhere else, like for example, DevOps or Ops people? So what skills are needed and how do you see the separation between the developer and someone else's responsibilities? I mean, the most important skill for CI/CD is definitely very good eyes to make sure that you see all the white space in YAML. Uh, jokes aside, obviously there is a lot of <laughs> there is a lot of YAML, and uh, understanding how that works definitely made me a lot uh, a lot more proficient with CI/CD when I kind of really started using Visual Studio Code, for example, which kind of shows you those kind of lines to make sure that indentations are are all into in 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 the right order i mean the most opsy opsy type of uh, skill is definitely reading the logs reading the build logs reading the test logs any kind of stack traces just kind of understanding how your platform is spitting out information about what's happened or what's gone up, gone wrong especially uh, is crucial whether you're a java developer you obviously want to know how stack traces work but also how and where to look when when you see one and uh, that's obviously specific to each each platform each uh, tool that you're using but uh, that's like the main, uh, the main thing. And building on that, like obviously you have you have the logs, you have the ability to to see them. It's great to be able to kind of filter through them very easily. So grab and uh, piping them to to grab and just kind of like understanding those kind of basic terminal uh, terminal commands to. To work with that kind of a lot of textual data is great, and I think that's more historically been more of an ops uh, skill as well. Now it's definitely kind of quite quite common, and uh, it's one I do encourage every kind of junior developer to really start picking up. At least invest a little bit into that. I'm not talking like understanding in depth how AWK and SED work, for example, because I don't know how they work. And usually you can find that on Stack Overflow if you need a particular command. But yeah, at least at least using the basic terminal commands like grabbing and that kind of stuff for for regular expressions in 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 logs and finding things in what's happening. And uh, yeah, the the other tools are obviously when you get to SSH into somewhere, you want to know like how to use a textual based editor. Like I personally rely on Visual for everything, and it's I'm still very slow and very clunky with Vim or Nano or other tools. But at least I know how to edit things and kind of get into where where I need to be with some Googling sometimes, but uh, that's like a good skill to have as well. Yeah, continuing on that topic, exactly. Like, uh, even if you don't know how to do something, at least some general understanding that you can Google or use Stack Overflow, or at least like understanding what are the tools which are available on every system, basically using grep. And of course, you don't need all the esoteric Git commands, but at least uh, one thing which was which I um, haven't used for a long time uh, before. Epicode is actually Git blame. 
like understand that uh, you can see. So, so what is the purpose that you understand that who has made this change and what is this related to? Because very often you realize, okay, there is this feature which was undocumented and changed three releases ago and now something broke. And you can see where it came from and now you have some better logic to find it. And also git diff, like you want to compare to files what has actually changed. There are visual tools for that nowadays. You don't really need uh, git commands. But uh, assuming at least you know that there are these git commands, because at some point you might actually have to go to a command line, not be afraid of using uh, the command line and at least understanding that you can press up to get the old commands. Surprisingly enough, at least nowadays, most junior developers are still typing their curls like every single time. And I was like, how many minutes are you wasting every like every day? But you should understand that uh, the old command history is there. It, it's a build machine and how definitely how SSH works and how SCP works. SCP is one of the Things which I still Google, but once, like once a year, I sometimes forget which way it works. But uh, if you need to copy something from the machine or to the machine, it's still like we are not moving away from the command line. Yeah, that's for sure. I would add that for Git commands, the listener should at least find out about Git stash and Git cherry pick, which are two of my very favorite favorite things to do alongside with git blame if you have any troubles or want to develop something. Yeah, and for, for as said, so uh, in essence, knowing how editors work, knowing how the command line works. Also, there is a cool tool called Postman. So if you're doing internet-based development, you can use either the the browser developer tools or the postman to pick the actual command line commands such as curls from postman, which then in essence helps also to start learning the command line work with the examples coming from some other tool that you can then first use graphically and then start moving towards command line. And of course, holy war question, I use insomnia because I like the insomnia interface better. It's an alternative to postman. Yeah, well said, well said. The next question would be, how do you share understanding and skills for development across the whole team? Yeah, so obviously it's important. I think the best way to learn is to be involved. And it's important to really get everyone involved into and equipped to be involved in, in the process. So we talked about the kind of core skills being the terminal and Git and uh, all of that. So I, I very much encourage every single developer to like understand those kind of core uh, terminal and Git skills so that they can then be more involved into the rest of the process. Same goes for reading logs. It's just like it's a it's a it's it's a it's a skill that needs to be not only taught but also fostered so that you kind of keep practicing it. And uh, once you have that, you can essentially get the whole team on 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 top of how CI/CD is configured, and uh, they can actually get benefit from looking at the scripts, uh, looking at uh, what happens in a build, what happens in a deployment, and understanding that. Uh, actually, another comment, it's also the other way around. Let's say you have a dedicated DevOps guy who is doing the deployments. If uh, he or she is totally like not 
not understanding what are the new features, what's going on, what is going to change. It might cause a problem like, okay, this is not building, but what do we have a reason? Do we have a big new feature? Are we changing some sort of libraries? Are we changing some logging? Is it expected to fail? So that, uh, let's say you have a dedicated uh, DevOps team that they know what, what are the new features and what are the upcoming features. And if we have like a known problem, let's say we're using some library which is becoming deprecated that at some point this build is going to break, that it's clear that maybe this is a temporary solution. I mean, again, we are not in a perfect world. Sometimes we have to do, we have deadlines to meet. And once in a while, even if the code is good, like, you know, this solution might be changed later, that it's clear that it will break eventually. This mostly has to do with, let's say, outdated libraries or some questionable JavaScript or Python developments. And yet again, uh, developers should make sure that the build is working before it's actually committed. Like, if if you know this is not gonna compile, like, why are you committing? Like, why are you saying that this is done? Uh, so, pull request itself is like, even if somebody checks your pull request, you have to make sure that this is compiling before you actually do the pull request. I guess one of the things when you create a branch, I think the branch can fail. As Zan already said, that if you run your unit test, you make sure that it compiles builds how, and you have integration acceptance tests, maybe end-to-end tests that you cannot test on your own computer or the local environment. Then having the builds failing in your branch is quite okay. But then latest when you go to creating pull requests and of course the mainline red are really deep red in comparison to the branch builds that you would do it with your team or individually. Before wrapping up, I would like to ask Zan if we wanted to now go about and start using Circle CI and find out how it works or even merge our current builds to Circle CI, how would you go about doing it? If you want to start using CircleCI, the best way to do this is CircleCI.com or CircleCI.com slash developer for the kind of developer and documentation portal. It's, it's, uh, the tool is actually pretty handy and in the, in the way that once you start, once you create an account login and kind of connect your VCS provider, let's say GitHub, it, it kind of gives you a list of projects that are accessible to you, uh, to pick. And then you basically pick a project and uh, it usually def- detects what language, what framework it is, and gives you a sample configuration to get started. That usually like runs some build, maybe runs linter, maybe runs some unit tests. It's not like very kind of optimized or, or like it's not kind of uh, tweaked to your, to your needs, to your project, but it should give you the starting point for kind of going going ahead uh, with with the rest. If you're kind of looking to migrate from Jenkins, we actually do have a Jenkins converter tool, which essentially does the converts your uh, Jenkins configuration into CircleCI. And that's kind of another thing to kind of give you a a bit of an edge or a few steps uh, helps you to make the first couple of steps. So yeah, that's that's kind of a good good place to start, I suppose, with CircleCI. Sounds good. Yeah, I, I remember when the Jenkins file was introduced, I had to create a Groovy engine for myself to actually see what is going on in the build file. So having this kind of a converter 
definitely comes in handy. And I also noticed that from the Circle CI documentation, there are a number of other migration guides for various environments to how to see how to get up and running with Circle CI. Let's do a wrap up. What kind of advice would you, Zan and Anton, give to our listeners so that they can create and deliver apps more efficiently and, and most importantly, more enjoyably? Yeah, for, for me, it's essentially get the whole team on board, get the whole team equipped and able to contributing because DevOps at its core, it's a cultural thing. It's, uh, it, it's all about kind of getting people doing the things to automate what machines should be doing, essentially. So the first step would be uh, get everyone kind of the basic uh, knowledge and equipment to be to to be able to contribute, and then kind of encourage to get them to contribute to those processes and to the setup and ultimately owning the entire CI/CD pipeline as a whole team, as opposed to having one person uh, relying on it. Yeah, not much to add to that point. Again, like the team should be, I guess, interested in uh, like don't 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 blame like this is like the front get front end guy's fault or this is the database guy's fault that like you are trying to to develop an application or like whatever system you are developing that it's uh, it's a team effort and you don't play it's uh, the build doesn't work because the DevOps guy doesn't know how to write the pipelines. We are a bit running out of time, but again, just make sure the whole team is interested in delivering uh, reliable. Yeah, I'm going to add in that, as said, as Sam said, culture is the most important and essential part of DevOps. So being working in a blameless environment where everybody is working towards the same direction is, is the number one thing. It's often very difficult to achieve. But it's something, if you go for continuous delivery, it's essential. I'm going to add in that you cannot improve what you are not measuring. I know it sounds harsh after talking about culture, but the fact is, if you want to start improving your current practices, you have to start also measuring. And one of the ways to measure is, of course, starting to do CI, CD. And Circle CI actually has a really good podcast from six months ago, how to measure DevOps success for key metrics. I had this article as part of my speak in the, the DevOps conference just a month ago. And this article or blog article will be featured in, in the text below the podcast. And you should go and read that as an additional read. For this podcast, Many thanks to you, Zan. Many thanks to you, Anton, for joining in for the discussion over CI and CD. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want to continue the conversation with Zan, Anton, and Marco, be sure to check out their profiles in Twitter and LinkedIn. You can find the links in the show notes. If you have not already, please subscribe to our podcast and give us a rating on your platform. It means the world to us. Also, check out our other episodes for interesting and exciting talks. All I'm saying to you now is take care of yourself and keep up the zero day delivery.